electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Ukraine is shedding light on the critical nature of space infrastructure. With thousands of satellites orbiting the planet, the magnitude of that connectivity is the reason the U.S. created the Space Force to, as Chief of Space Operations General Jay Raymond recently told me, secure those assets and deter conflict from extending beyond Earth. It's very clear that space has become a warfighting domain, just like air, land, and sea. And what historically has been a benign, peaceful domain without a threat is no longer the case. We used to have the luxury of taking space for granted. As long as you could launch a satellite in orbit, that satellite survived what we called infant mortality, that it, that it made it onto orbit and, and, uh, and worked, then uh, that's all you had to worry about. That's not the case today. But it isn't just government-owned spacecraft at risk in times of geopolitical turmoil. Commercial companies can also become targets. Yeah, so first of all, yes, it can be fully restored, and it is being restored right now. We've brought on a large number of the uh, units that were affected, and we're doing more and more every day. Viasat is recovering from a cyber attack that unfolded as Russian troops invaded Ukraine. While investigations by Western intelligence agencies continue, Mark Dankberg, co-founder and chairman of Viasat, says events on the ground are raising a key question. What are the limits in space? I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. With a satellite 2022 conference underway in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Mark Dankberg, the co-founder and chairman of Viasat, to discuss his outlook for the satellite operator and the industry overall. But first, we started with a cyber attack that took Viasat's internet service offline in Ukraine and parts of Europe just as Russia began its invasion in late February. The Ukraine military uses Viasat's satellite communications technology, and the company is a contractor to the U.S. government and other allies as well. Dankberg says service can and is being fully restored, and I asked if he could confirm whether Russia is in fact to blame. Our conversation starts there. We uh, did a very thorough investigation. We've been uh, cooperating with the U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies. I think the things that we can tell you about is we can tell you what happened and what we did to restore service. The who did it or where it came from, I think that that's where you get that from the government. So we can't confirm yet that it's Russia. At least you can't confirm uh, that it's Russia. It come from the government, yes. Understood, understood. Um, we did get a recent U.S. government advisory warning of possible threats to satellite communication networks, urging companies to bolster cybersecurity defenses here in the U.S. Um, given the lessons you're learning in real time in Eastern Europe right now, your thoughts on that and how it's going towards fortifying Viasat in, in other locations? Yeah, so the advisory really said that satellite operators should be very vigilant and should lower their threshold for incidents that they report to intelligence and law enforcement agencies. So we think that that's absolutely warranted. Uh, one of the, the main points about the incident that did occur in Eastern Europe is that it occurred on the KSAT satellite, which we now own, 
but is operated by a third party under a transition agreement. So actually we weren't able to apply the monitoring uh, technology that we have for all the rest of our satellites. Uh, and that's, so we, we do have uh, all those warning indicators. We do cooperate regularly with the government on those. And we think that the advisory that they issued is, is exactly right on. How do you, I guess, bolster, fortify, secure uh, those satellite operations? And does that change now in light of what we've seen in Eastern Europe? So the, the way that we deal with that is we monitor all the traffic on the network to, for those that we, that we actually operate ourselves. So we monitor all the traffic and that involves billions and billions of alerts that occur every day. So what we do is we have an artificial intelligence system that sorts through those, it's like pattern recognition, and we can figure out which are the, the important ones. And then we also can set thresholds for the reporting that, we, that the uh, law enforcement is asking for. That's how we do it. Okay. And then humanitarian assistance programs, that's something you've been actively involved in in Eastern Europe in the midst of all of this as well, and being able to connect people and refugees. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so yeah, we don't really want to talk about what's going on in, in a war zone, but I think on the humanitarian front, outside of the Ukraine, uh, one, it turns out one of the, uh, some of our executives have relatives in Slovakia, a family in Slovakia, and I think there's a lot of stories like this among companies in the U.S., and we just want to do things to help. So what we've done is working closely with the government in Slovakia has been able to set up satellite hotspots right on the border where they're being inundated with uh, refugees, unfortunately, right now. And one of the very first things those refugees want to be able to do is contact their relatives, let them know that they made it safely. And that's what we're able to do with, with our satellite networks. They're right on the border. We can set them up wherever those refugees are coming through, where they're being housed, and we can serve many thousands or tens of thousands of people simultaneously. And I think that's a great example of some of the humanitarian type benefits that, that satellite offers. Mm. I mean, whether it's humanitarian, whether it's security, uh, it really, this entire situation from a geopolitical standpoint shines a light on just how connected the world is right now and just how crucial uh, the infrastructure that is in space is to that process. Yes, it does. And it also really illustrates one of the themes that, that we've been saying, which is Space is something that is important to dozens of, if not hundreds of countries around the world, let alone companies. And so one of the main themes that we've been working on and trying to build awareness around is what are the limits to space? How is it that those limits should be allocated in a way that's inclusive of all countries that want to get the benefits of space, whether it's for national security, digital inclusion, humanitarian efforts, whatever those efforts are, they involve participation in space. And of course, we're having this conversation ahead of the satellite conference in DC, where I would imagine it's going to be a key topic as well. What is going to be your message to the attendees of that conference and, and to the industry overall? Well, on, the, on this front, on the uh, sustainable space front, our main message is really that what we need now are measurements. I think you've seen over the last year or two, uh, much more awareness about the issue that people are starting to understand that there are going to be limits. So we think the next thing is really to measure and quantify those. So we can know how many satellites can safely be sustained in space of a given size. So it's, it's not just a number of satellites, it's characteristics of those satellites. I think once people get a sense of what that is, 
then we can start evaluating the initiatives of individual countries or companies in the context of leaving room for all, all countries to participate in space. You're going to be participating in a panel with a number of other executives, including Gwen Shotwell of SpaceX. At, dare I say, there's been no love lost between Viasat and SpaceX, where satellite constellations are concerned, and there's been a real back and forth in terms of regulatory filings with the FCC as well around that next generation Starlink uh, service, too. How's the competitive landscape evolving, and what does that mean for Viasat? Well, two things. One, in terms of the competition, you know, we we love to compete. I mean, that's where we, that's, I love what we do. I think we're very technology centric. So the competition part is good. I think that the real issue that we're trying to get focus on is measurement of the risks. And those risks have been well identified by the FCC, recently by NASA, and they include uh, the risks of collision in space, which could make space inaccessible to all. It includes the impact on astronomy, the impact of re-entry of thousands or tens of thousands of space vehicles a year and burning up in the upper atmosphere. So what we really need to do now is not just acknowledge those risks, but measure them. And then once we understand what those measurements are, we can come up with uh, allocations of those risks that will preserve access to space, but still allow multiple parties. So it doesn't become dominated by any individual system or country. Yeah, of course, SpaceX get a lot, gets a lot of the attention and it has its Starlink satellites deployed uh, into the thousands already, but there are so many uh, startup names that are, and even some established names that are taking similar tacks right now and looking to launch some of these mega constellations. Would you be doing something similar at Viasat? Do you expect there to be consolidation uh, through that process as well? Yes, uh, I think so. Uh, consolidation is one of the issues mm. that's important that I think will be a theme at the at the conference. So one of the things that, that we've been saying on the consolidation issue is that it's not going to be purely an economic or business issue because of the sovereign interests that so many countries have in space. And on the consolidation front, one of the you know the big stories has been our pending acquisition of Inmarsat. Mm -hmm. uh, just today we, we released uh, an announcement that says we've agreed with the UK government on the things that we'll do as part of the acquisition to preserve the UK's interest in space. And that's really the thing that we're trying to emphasize is that the consolidation can't be purely just a business thing. It's got to take into account the sovereign interests of the dozens of countries that are already uh, active in space and that have ambitions to, uh, to expand that interest in space, including putting up other constellations. So that, that's worked at geosynchronous orbits for decades. Uh, you see cooperation among all the countries in the world. What we need is a similar framework at non-geosynchronous, which would include LEO. It's complicated, but, but it's a manageable thing. But it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and finally, just in terms of that $7 billion plus deal to combine with the Marsat, given the fact that you did strike this agreement with the UK government, on track to close? And if so, what's the timeline? Yeah, uh, when we announced the deal, we, we expected somewhere in the 9 to 18 month range that, mm -hmm. that the trans would close. I think we're on track for that. This agreement is really about preserving the UK's interests in space and, and helping them from a technology perspective, from a jobs perspective, from a participation in the global space uh, uh, economy perspective. And I think that was an essential ingredient in it. I think we it's good that we've been able to reach agreement there. Now we still have a few more hurdles on the regulatory front that we need to get through, but we think those are 
uh, we think those are manageable and they're proceeding. Now, the other thing that uh, we did is we recently published a preliminary uh, prospectus, a prox proxy on the uh, uh, shareholder vote. And that has a lot of information that I think will reassure shareholders about some of the aspects of the transaction that we, we said when we first announced it. Okay, great. Mark Dankberg, chairman and co-founder of Viasat. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.